The question I have for you tonight as we jump into our text is what controls your life? What controls your life? What helps you make the decisions that you consciously and subconsciously make day in and day out, moment by moment? What motivates you? What drives you? What do you wake up in the morning thinking about? What do you go to bed at night thinking about? What do you do first thing in the morning? What do you do with your money, your free time? These are the kinds of questions that can help us know what controls our life. This week and next, as we wrap up our series in Judges, believe it or not, we're wrapping it up already. Um, We are looking at a person and a people and a tribe and a nation and a group of people that it's very vivid what is controlling their life and it has disastrous consequences. In it, we learn about what is controlling them and unfortunately, in all of these Judges passages, just like all of these sermons we've heard in Judges, we learn a little bit more about what does and does not control us as well. Would you pray with me and for me as we open God's word tonight? Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to dig into your word. Thank you for setting aside this space for us tonight. God, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for what you have to say. Thank you for this wonderful time of worship in your house with your people. God, we pray that you would continue to be worshiped, that we would hear from you. God, I pray that you would find people that want to be your servants, that want to have humble hearts, that want to obey you with their hands and feet and lives. God, help us to see what we need to see tonight. Help us to see what we don't want to see tonight. And ultimately help us to see you more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't already, please open to Judges chapter 17. Judges chapter 17. In Judges 17, 18, and 19, we meet this guy named Micah, and then we also meet a Levite. We're going to learn a little bit about Micah, then we're going to learn a little bit about what Levites are, and then we're going to learn about what this specific Levite is about. Today, in chapter 17 and 18, we're going to take a look at who these guys are and what they're being controlled by, and then next week, Pastor Brooks is going to walk us through the consequences of what controls their life. We'll see a little bit of it in these two chapters, but then next week, a very vivid and gory and awful story of what their idolatry leads to. So Judges chapter 17, the first six verses, I'm not going to reread them. Uh, Pastor Jeff just read them for you. I will give a little bit of commentary here on what we just heard take place. It's very easy as we read these Old Testament narratives to just kind of get caught up in the details of the narrative or the names we don't know or the barbaric things that seem to be taking place and not really catch what's being said. So I want us to catch what is being said. So please have these verses in front of you, Judges 17, 1 through 6. I remember in the late 90s, I was very excited about a movie coming out. It starred Kurt Russell and Steven Seagal. And I was very excited because these two guys were in it. Raise your hand if you know who Steven Seagal is. Okay, 
a few of us, that's good. It was a very 90s moment when I was excited to see an action movie with Kurt Russell and Steven Seagal. If you don't know Steven Seagal, he was a a Russian Jewish immigrant to America, or at least his folks were, and he knew martial arts. He was this big imposing figure, and he did all these action movies. Well, they had made this movie look like it was going to be incredible. Just Kurt Russell and Steven Seagal taking out bad guys, awesome late 90s action flick, and I could not wait to see it. Then I saw the movie, and in the first five minutes, I'm going to spoil this movie that's 30 years old for you, so spoiler warning right here. Steven Seagal dies in the first five minutes. Like, what? What is going on? It was shocking. You don't do that. We find something similar here in Judges chapter 17. Tim Keller, in his commentary on this passage, says, at least with Samson, we got a hero's journey and a story arc that we're used to. In Judges 17, there's no good guys and everything bad happens. When we open up this passage, we see a mom interacting with her son. He steals silver from her, takes it back to her and says, what do you want me to do with this? And her response, make an idol dedicated to the Lord. That should strike you as odd. A mother telling her son, take the money you stole from me and make an idol out of it and dedicate it to God. And she refers to God as the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jews, the God that we know. But she says, make an idol dedicated to that God. You don't have to read very much of the Old Testament and you don't have to go to church very long to know that they're not supposed to make idols. So there's two schools of thought on what's going on here. Either she didn't know any better or she knew better and she was using God and making an idol and making a new cult or a new religion that was an offshoot of biblically following the one true God. I can't decide which is worse, but they're both bad. Make an idol dedicated to the Lord. Let's continue on the story. So now we have a little bit of the background. We know what's going on here. Verse 7. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem and Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. First, let's talk about what a Levite is. Levites were the descendants of Aaron, And Aaron was the first priest dedicated to the Lord, working side by side with Moses. And the the tribe of the Levites, the people of the Levites, were set aside as the priestly order, the ones most connected to God, the ones that could go into the presence of God, the ones that could make sacrifices for the sins of the people, the ones that could speak on God's behalf in the early Old Testament. This is who the Levites are. We see another interesting detail as we read these three verses. We notice the words Judah and Bethlehem. These should ring a bell to us, especially if we've read the New Testament. 
especially if we know the story of Jesus from the tribe and people of Judah and from Bethlehem of Judea. This Levite was set aside, born into the family that should know God the best. He was from Jesus's hometown and from Jesus's tribe, the the one that would produce Jesus in the end. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the author refers to this obscure guy from Genesis named Melchizedek, and he is this representative of a king and a priest and says that Jesus has come in the, the same way or has the same kind of role of Melchizedek. This Levite that isn't given a name in this passage should be who the New Testament can refer to as, hey, this guy, he was born in Bethlehem. He was born in the line of Jesus. He was a a Levite. He was a priest of God. But instead, he's not even given a name. Let's keep reading to try and figure out why. Starting with verse 10, going through the end of the chapter. And Micah said to him, stay with me. And be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite. And the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Micah is setting up his own religion. He not only welcomes this Levite into his family, he makes him his priest. He says, the Lord will prosper me because now I've got my very own Levite priest. He's setting up a religion for himself. He is using this religious guy and his religious knowledge to set up a a religion around this idol that he's made out of the silver that he stole from his mom. This is a movie with no good guys, basically is what's going on here. As we continue on in the story, things do not get better. Chapter 18 starts with a familiar refrain, in those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan were seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Few things going on in this introductory verse that really sets up where this whole chapter is headed that we're just going to briefly gloss over. There's no king in Israel we should start to recognize this refrain because it starts off chapter 16, 17, 18. There's no king in Israel. There's no king in Israel. There's no king in Israel. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, melting down silver to make idols dedicated to the Lord, setting up their own religions, taking Levite priests and making them a priest for themselves. That's what's taking place. Then there's these people, the tribe of the people of Dan. It hadn't received its full inheritance from the Lord, so now they want an inheritance. So they go off looking for their inheritance. I'm going to summarize the rest of the chapter here, and then we're going to read the end of the chapter. These tribe of Danites, they stay with Micah, and they hear the Levite's voice in Micah's home, and they recognize him and say, hey, this Levite, we know him. 
the Danites then, because they haven't gotten the inheritance that is owed them, steal Micah's idol and say to the Levite, you're a priest of one now, now come with us and you can be a priest of many. You can come be a priest of many. Forget this household religion that this one guy set up in his house with his one idol. Come be the priest of many, the whole tribe. So he goes with them. Let's read Micah's response to figuring out that his household idol and his personal priest has been stolen from him. Judges chapter 18, verse 21. So they turned and departed, the Danites, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's home were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you, that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest, and you go away, and now what do I have left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. Micah is devastated. He has built his life upon this idol and having his own priest and setting up his own religion in his home. And now it's been taken away and he is devastated. This is a familiar pattern that we have seen in the Old Testament to this point, And we will continue to see if you keep reading the Old Testament. People thinking that they have lost something that to them represents God or their relationship with God, and they're devastated because they lose that thing, that idol, that position of authority, that religious artifact. They lose something that they think is God, and then they weep. That's what we see here with Micah. But the thing is that God had made a covenant with his people. He would never leave them. In fact, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 11, if you do things my way, if you worship me, if you keep your life from idols, I will be with you and I won't ever be taken away from you. God says, I have a purpose, a plan, a promise for you. I have power for you. All you need is me, my promise to you, and you need my holiness that only I can offer you. That's all you need. Yet, the people of God continued to think they needed more. And when they lost those things, those idols, they were devastated. Because they built their life upon something that could be taken away from them. We need to spend the rest of our time here tonight talking about idolatry. In the Old Testament, God told his people to destroy the idols among them, and instead they bowed down to them. He sent them into the promised land that he had promised to give them, and he said, just don't bow down to the idols of the people. And yet they did. They bowed down to the things that they were supposed to destroy. 
God says, use the good things I've given you to worship me. And instead, they make idols out of those things and worship them instead. Romans 1 says they worship the creation when they should be worshiping the creator. That's at the heart of idolatry. In this story of Micah and the Levite, we see a progression of idolatry. It starts with personal idolatry. The Levite, or Micah first, Micah wanted the silver that was his mom's, and so he took it. Then his mom wanted an idol and wanted to do some good with the silver, and so they made an idol out of it, and they personally bowed down to it. But then it became a family affair where the whole family had a new idol. And Micah set up an idol and a religion, and he set up worship for his whole family. Then this spreads to tribes, to brothers, sisters, grandparents, kids, grandkids. And then a whole tribe starts giving themselves over to idols. Notice this pattern as you read through the Old Testament, how it's starts with one person in the tribe and then the whole tribe of people like the Danites that we read about here give themselves to these idols. So personal, familial, tribal and then it goes to community and religious and then people from one religion or people from one community or people from one people group all give their lives to these idols. And then it becomes a national thing. You have entire nations giving themselves over to the idols of their day. So we see this in Micah. We see it in the Levite. Where do we see it today? We need to spend some time talking about the idols of our day. I talked a little bit with Bo. I prayed through this. I looked through some resources that I had and There's not just seven, first off. There's probably more. I may not even hit on the first one that pops into your head, but I think that if we dig into these for just a little bit, we will see that these seven idols are so prevalent in our day and motivate so much of what's going on in our culture, in our families, in our own hearts. There's so many things as we look at these idols that drive our behaviors, that control our actions, that determine the first thing we do in the morning. They determine how we think about God and how we think he thinks about us. So what are the idols of our day? First, ease and avoiding hardship. We are so allergic to anything that's hard. We're so allergic to anything that is hard hard. As soon as something seems like it might be hard, there's got to be a better way, or that's clearly not for me. We so desire a life of ease, and so many things in our life have become easy. Something that changed my superficial part of my life forever was Amazon putting a delivery facility right outside of Iowa City. It changed my shopping forever. Why in the world would I go stand in the line at Walmart anymore when I can purchase something and it's not three to five business days, it's tomorrow. It is so easy to shop. Oh no, I ran out of deodorant. I don't have to go without deodorant for three days. I can have deodorant tomorrow. It's a blessing for me and for you. 
Everything has gotten so easy that as soon as something is hard, we're like, that can't be God's will because it's hard. Next, autonomy through self-identity. We so badly want to choose our own identity, whether that's gender or sexuality or how we're looked at by other people. We want to determine for ourselves who we are because if we do, we don't need God. We desire autonomy. We desire identity. We desire purpose outside of God. If we can figure out a life for ourselves where God is not included, we can do whatever we want. This is the idol behind many of the behaviors of our day and many of the things our culture celebrates and calls good. Third, tolerance is an idol. The biggest sin you can commit in our culture today is to be against something. Tolerance has become an idol. Fourth, identity politics. It's been really helpful to me to read a particular um, pastor in England. Faithful pastor, writes some great commentaries, writes some great books and some great takes on where we're at in our societies. England is just like Iowa City and Portland, Oregon and America just ahead of us, right? So one thing that they have that's different than us though is that they have seven political parties that are mainstream in England. And he said that English, faithful English evangelical Christians never fight about politics because they all know they disagree already. He said, if you're sitting in an aisle with seven people, more than likely you're all seven in different parties. They have not wed certain religious practices or certain kinds of church or certain evangelical movements with certain political parties. And so you have seven people going to church together that represent seven different political parties. Sounds lovely. Sounds lovely. Here, we have identity politics. Where the other side isn't wrong, they're evil. We have taken on how we vote and how we think about political systems and economics and what we should do about complex issues in our world and in our culture, and we've made them our identity. Absurd. Fifth, self-protection. When I was growing up through the church, junior high, high school, the big thing we were warned against was promiscuity, sex outside of marriage, living a lifestyle where there was the hookup culture. And of course, still bad, still happens, still a problem. But statistically speaking, that is not the biggest problem of people today people are having less and less intercourse because they're having less and less interaction with other human beings. We have gotten so into self-protection that we don't want to put ourselves out there to even go on a date, let alone go farther than that because we want to protect ourselves. We don't want to put ourselves out there. We don't want to get hurt and COVID just fed that. I don't have to interact with other humans. I don't have to go on dates. I don't have to put myself out there. This is great. Six, entertainment or the right to not be bored. We are terrible at standing still. 
We are terrible at sitting still. We're terrible at waiting in line. We're terrible if we have to wait on anything. Have you ever gone to the bathroom or waited on a bus or something and you forgot your phone? You're like, oh, what do I do? What do I do with my hands? I'm not sure what to do with my hands. What do I look at? What am I going to do? I drove past a picnic today, a bunch of people out in the front yard. They'd taken over like this whole like block of a neighborhood. And there was like 10, 11, 12 people sitting around. You could tell they were having a barbecue and they were all looking at their phones, not interacting with one another. We have to be entertained. And we think we have a right to not be bored and we need to be entertained every moment. Last one, and then we'll talk about some solutions. Success and affluence. We see it right here in our text. How do the Danites recruit the Levite? Now you're the priest of one, you can be the priest of many. We buy into the lie that many equals more. That if we have more of something, then it's got to be better. More influence, more money, more people in our church, more whatever ends up being the barometer for success and faithfulness. So why do we turn to these idols? Very quickly and very simply, we turn to these idols because of fear. We're afraid. We're afraid we won't be fully loved. We won't be fully accepted. We won't have the strength to do what we're called to do. God won't come through on his end. Maybe God loves us the way other human beings have loved us in a very fallen or broken or hurtful way. What if we end up all alone? What if everything ends up meaningless? What if this career, this education, or this home that I bought, or this thing that I'm about to do, what if it doesn't end up the way that I think that it will? So we fear. And when we fear, when we're afraid, it seems so easy to worship the created, shiny things that give us ease and identity and entertainment right here, right now. So we bow our lives down to the shiny things of this world. We see this fear in our lives, in our culture, and throughout scripture. Look at how many people in scripture are motivated by fear Moses goes up on the mountain and the people fear he's not coming back. And so they make an idol to represent God for them. We do the same thing. Let's get to some solutions. How do we stop doing this? First, we worship the one true God. We worship the one true God. Folks, I shouldn't have even put the other three up there until we talked about this one we skip right ahead and we go, of course, of course, we're Christians. Of course, we're supposed to worship God. What's next? We skip right over worship of the one true God. We'll never even see our idols until we know what the one true God actually looks like. The way to spot an idol, the way to know if we have one is first to know what God really looks like. What does his voice sound like? What is his love like? What does his word, his spirit, his people, what do they have to say to us? 
about who he is. We need a more clear picture of what our heavenly father looks like. Or we're never going to see these idols. In scripture, we see a pattern. We see it in Joshua chapter 24. We see it repeated in the Psalms. We see it throughout the Old Testament. God says to his people, you forgot about me and you made an idol. They go hand in hand. You forgot what I did for you and then you made an idol. We forget who God is. We forget what he's done for us. And so we turn to shiny things to distract us, to fulfill us, to give us identity or pleasure or comfort in the moment. We need to know the one true God. In just a minute, we're going to talk about how to do that. As we worship the one true God, then we can spot the idols then we can see what isn't the real thing. Then we can see what fake love, fake comfort, fake pleasure looks like. We can spot it. We can name it. We can see how it compares to the real thing. God's love for us should be the barometer, the measuring stick behind how we measure everything else. But instead, we measure his love based on the things of this world. And we don't see him clearly. We're looking through something fuzzy. We can't see how much he really loves us. We need to first see him. When we spot idols, we can start seeing them in the different progressions that we saw in this story in the book of Judges. We start to see our personal idols. Interestingly, the Bible in Numbers 25 and Psalms 106 says, my people have yoked themselves to idols. It doesn't just say bowed down. It doesn't just say made for themselves. It says they've yoked themselves to them. You yoke two animals together so they're stuck together and they can't go anywhere without each other. That's the accusation that God has for his people. You've yoked yourself to an idol. We need to see the things that we have yoked ourselves to that aren't Jesus. Because Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Rest in me. Come to me when you're weary, heavy laden, worn out from the things of this world. Yoke yourself to me. When we yoke ourselves to Jesus, we look at the idols of our life and our culture and our family and our tribe and our country. And we say, that's not Jesus. I don't want anything to do with it. It's not as good as Jesus. Then we can spot them in our family. Author Paul Tripp says that just like when the power goes out in your house and you realize how loud your house is, you realize that the refrigerator is actually making noise all the time and you don't realize it till the power goes out and it's eerily silent. He says that every household has something humming in the background that you're not even aware of, but it's impacting everything in your home. And that thing that's going on in the background is what you worship. What you worship as a family is the thing that's impacting everything that happens in your family, but you can't quite put your finger on it. We need to spot the idols in our family. We need to spot the idols in our tribe. We need to spot the things that are idols or 
sacred cows in our own church or our own evangelical community or however big you want to make this church community. We need to spot the idols in those as well. We need to look for blind spots in our religious tribes that we align ourselves with. We need to make sure that we heed God's warning when it keeps telling us there was no king in Israel. We need to make sure we're bowing down our lives to the one true king. We need to spot our idols in our culture and in our nation as well, because we've got them and we bow down to them as a culture and as a nation. Before we move on to the third one, I want to point out this because we miss it. We miss it in our politics. We miss it as Christians. There are two principles of idolatry we have to grasp before we can walk away from the book of Judges and this whole conversation on idols. The first is that idolatry works from the inside out. It starts in our heart. We bow down to something in the quietness of our own heart before anyone else can see it, before we're even consciously aware of it. There is something controlling and motivating our behavior. Our default is to bow down to idols. If we don't do something about that, we're just treating the fruit of the problem and not getting down to the root. So first, idolatry starts on the inside and then works its way out into the other areas of our life and into the broader culture. The second principle that we need to know about idolatry, individual personal idolatry and societal or corporate or community idolatry are both happening at the same time. We get tripped up on this when it doesn't match our political thoughts. Is it individual responsibility or is it corporate accountability? Yes, it is. If idolatry and sin happens from the inside out, it is impacting me, it is impacting my family, this church, our community, and the world. When a bunch of sinners get together, you know what you call that? A sinful organization. That's just the way it works. Let me give you an illustration because we really get tripped up on this. So I want to give you a metaphor to help us all understand how this works. <clears throat> so I made a mistake once. Well, more than once, but a particular one I want to talk about right now. Um, one time I bought milk for my family and I bought the milk with the red lid on it, which is what kind of milk? Whole milk. Yes, that's right. We buy whole milk. We love whole milk. It's real milk. It doesn't taste like watered down milk. So we buy the milk with the red lid. I once went to a gas station. We were desperate for milk. So I bought milk from the gas station, grabbed the red lid one, took it home, opened it up, skim milk with a red lid. What are people doing? The family was not happy. The kids were really little at the time. They were very not happy with me. I made a mistake and it impacted our family. But by the time we finished that milk or poured it down the drain or whatever we did with it, that mistake was erased. And everyone forgot about it. And now it's just a sermon illustration. Some mistakes have short-term consequences for a few people. I recently made a second mistake. I've made two mistakes. Here's the second one. 
Recently, I was trying to save money for our family at Costco, and so I was pricing toilet paper. So I was going through and seeing price per roll, what is the cheapest toilet paper? I found what the cheapest toilet paper was, and in my mind, it was not the Costco brand. It was a name brand, so I was going to take it home and be the hero because I bought cheap but good toilet paper. Well, half of that is right. It was cheap, but it was also bad. It was Scott's toilet paper. My wife would call it government-issued toilet paper uh, or public school toilet paper. Uh, It's the kind you can hold up and see through. It really is no good at all. I came home with Scott's toilet paper from Costco. So, of course, we have 128 rolls or whatever it was. This is a mistake with long-lasting implications, let me tell you. We are still paying the price for this mistake to this day. And it's not just me. It's the whole family and any of you that come over and use the Blackley bathroom. Some sins, some mistakes, some idols have short-term consequences for you or a few. Other idolatry lasts longer and spreads to many people. They're both true at the same time. So what do we need to do to stop doing this? Number three, we replace idols with a lifestyle of worship of God. A lifestyle of worship of God. There was a point in my Christian life where I thought that every problem in my life and every idol that I had and every sin that I was still committing was because I just didn't love Jesus enough. And I probably thought that because that's what I was told. You've probably been told that too. You've probably thought it. Maybe you've even taught it to other people that we just don't love Jesus enough. Of course, we have to question our heart and make sure that our allegiances are are what they should be and we need to remember what God has done for us. We also need a lifestyle of worship where we are more and more yoking ourselves to Jesus instead of other things. So if you want to eliminate idols in your life, as we all should, so we can worship the one true God and take Jesus's yoke upon you, look for the lifestyle that is feeding the idolatry and replace those things with a lifestyle of worship. One thing that I had the privilege of being able to discover while I was on sabbatical is that I start connecting with the Lord a little over an hour into a hike. I hit about three miles. My legs are long. I can walk three miles in uh, a little under an hour. But when I hit three miles, when I get just past an hour, I've sorted through all the junk. I've actually started praying and listening to God. My body is starting to give endorphins off. My body gets in a rhythm. I start noticing the things around me that God has made. I'm so thankful to learn that because I can't take 12 weeks off every year, but I can go on an hour and 10 minute walk every week in order to connect with God. In those long hikes, a lot of things were taking place. Vitamin D, noticing what God has created, exercise, prayer time, meditation on the things that I had read that morning, intercessory prayer for me and my family and all of you. Many 
good things were happening. It was feeding a lifestyle of worship. It's a lot harder to feed a lifestyle of worship of the one true God when every free moment we have is spent on this. We need to learn what a lifestyle of worship looks like for us and stop beating ourselves up because we're not reading our Bible enough and we're not praying enough. And if we just love Jesus enough, we would do those things more and we need a checklist and we need the right reading plan. Those things are great and helpful. And if you're not reading your Bible, I highly recommend it. But also we need to identify what is yoking us to idols and what can take Jesus's yoke upon us? What helps us take Jesus's yoke upon us? Last, this is my challenge for us as a church to let corporate worship reign. Singing together is awesome. I look forward to it every week. I love that we focus on congregational singing. I love that we sing words that are meaningful. I love that we sing the good news for and to one another as we worship God together. But that should not be our only corporate act of worship. Because just as idolatry spreads through a household, a family, a tribe, a church, a community, so does worship of the one true God. When we yoke ourselves to Jesus, when we take his yoke upon us, it becomes infectious in a community of people and people start falling falling in love with Jesus and following him and destroying the idols in their life and in their culture. We need to let corporate worship reign where we know what the one true God is and what he looks like and how much he loves us because of the community around us. And we have other people helping us spot the idols in our life and we can spot them in theirs. We need to let corporate worship reign and we need to let worship of the one true God spread like crazy. Would you stand with me? We'll end on our feet tonight as we always do, dedicating our very bodies to the Lord two readings for us tonight by way of a benediction, a good word from the Lord. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them night and day before God. And they God's people have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And how have they done that? They loved not their lives even unto death. In the end, Satan and the dominion of darkness and death and sin itself will be struck down for good because God's people loved him more than they loved their very lives. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you that we've heard from you tonight. We pray that you'd continue to speak. Show us where our idols are. Show us what you, the one true God, looks like. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. 
Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, for he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but our Lord, the Lord, made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, and strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Amen. God bless. Go in grace. We'll see you soon.